Healthy sexual culture is honest enough to understand that there are both healthy and unhealthy ways to approach sex. Healthy sexual culture is compassionate enough to understand that some people struggle with that. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your perfect love is casting out fear. And even when I'm caught in the middle of the storms of this life, I won't turn back, I know you are near, and I will fear no Storm. Oh. 
Um, so I just wanted to read um, to you guys this morning. It's called The Prayer of Faith in James. Um, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed because the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And so I just wanted to read that out this morning um, as I open us up with prayer for our service today. Um, and I was just meditating this morning on what it's like to pray in every season. And the Lord kind of offers us right there uh, a template to pray at all times, to pray when you're happy and sing praise to the Lord. And when, you're, when you have anxiety and when you have sickness, you can still pray to the Lord. Um, so I just wanted to pray this morning for joy for everyone. And so I just pray, Jesus, that everybody in the church this morning, no matter the season they're in, if they're in a season of anxiety and trouble, um, if they're in, ex in a season where they fear, feel overwhelmed, that they would be able to come to you. Um, if they have sickness, that they would be able to reach out to their faith community so that they may be made well. Um, and that if they have joy, that they would be able to sing praise to you right now where they are. I pray, Lord, that, um, that you would teach us how to continue to pray in all seasons. And this is a really weird season that we're in, Lord. And it's tough and troubling for a lot of people. And I just pray that we would find and sense your joy in the midst of that, Lord. That we would feel your Holy Spirit within us. That we would feel your presence. And that we would be overcome um, by the joy that we have, that um, we have salvation in you, that we have each other, um, and that you are for us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Morning, Blue Water. We're going to be taking communion as a church. So if you haven't gotten your elements yet, why don't you go ahead and get them? Uh, just an ordinary piece of bread and something to symbolize wine. In communion, we take everyday food, bread and everyday drink, uh, in this case something to symbolize wine. And through Jesus, these elements become a supernatural vessel. We tap into the source of ourselves as supernatural people. We're taking communion this morning in a variety of places, in a variety of ways. Some of us are taking it solo, some of us in pairs some with our household, some with our kiddos, some with our kitties, fishes, and pups, but none of us take it alone. We take the bread and the cup with Jesus and with each other, our church. Let's wrap our heads around this. We were made in the image of God. We were designed to be overflowingly generous, radically gracious, eternally loving, humble, bearers of the truth and love above all. We are called to give ourselves sacrificially to those around us. But try as we may, we don't live up to that. I don't live up to that. Blue Water, we don't live up to that, even though we try. We've all fallen short. We're all sinners. And a natural response to sin is to separate ourselves from God and from each other. But Jesus, 
has shed his body and blood as a way to help us see more clearly the heart of God. In a sense, he's saying, I would rather die than make a big deal out of sin, to let sin separate us. As a preparation for communion, I like to use a little liturgical prayer to help me confess. Um, and if you would like to join me, uh, I would love it. So. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We've not loved you with our whole heart. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We're truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy and forgive us that we may delight in thy will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. We can be confident that Jesus forgives us. And as you uh, eat of the bread and drink of the wine, Use the time to commune with him. Remember Jesus in a full sense. The big God-given purpose of Blue Water is to make powerful kingdom disciples. We have a saying around Blue Water that everyone's uh, minister. Now we've taken communion in a large gathering, um, but through this experience and as a minister, uh, would you consider taking communion more often in the next week and weeks and months? Um, take communion solo or in, in twos or in pairs with your household over the dinner table maybe, or the breakfast table, or the lunch table, with guests, or over Zoom. Uh, take it formally or informally, standing or sitting. Make your own bread or not. Make your own juice or wine or not. But when you do take communion, remember Jesus. Ask Him to be present. Ask him to forgive you of your sins for the things that you have done and the things that you have left undone for your thoughts and your deeds. And he will forgive you and you will feel it and experience it in a fuller way because of the bread and the wine. Aloha Blue Water families. Uh, thank you for joining us for worship. My name is Jason. And I'm Unho. Uh, we'll continue our worship service through our tithes and offerings. If you are visiting or new, thank you for joining us, but feel no obligation to give. Consider this service a gift to you. Uh, if you are a regular attender at Blue Water, you can give by sending your checks to the Blue Water office or giving online. I don't know about you, but the last eight months have been a mixed bag, filled with ups, downs, challenges, and blessings. I know for me, one of the challenges has been to connect, connect with people, 
to connect even with God. Um, Jesus gives us some encouragement. It says in John 14, 18, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. And he promises to give us his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is described as a guide, as an intercessor, a comforter, and a connector. Yeah, most of my life, the Holy Spirit has always felt like some mysterious entity floating around somewhere out there, very ephemeral and transient even. But after attending one of these Holy Spirit retreats, I've come to realize that Holy Spirit is actually very passionate about having a personal relationship with me and that the Holy Spirit lives in me. And as I've walked through unpacking what that means for me personally, I've experienced so much purpose and power and promise unfolding in my life. And it's honestly been one of the most exciting seasons in my spiritual journey. And it came from kind of the starting off point of laying down some of these misconceptions I had about who Holy Spirit is, um, where Holy Spirit is, and who Holy Spirit is in me and who I am. And so I'm super excited to continue to grow in this relationship and to also see other people kind of experience that relationship in their unique ways as well. That's awesome. Yeah, for me, the Holy Spirit retreat has always served as an oasis in the midst of a ministry desert. Uh, it's time to be refreshed, to renewed, to connect with people, to worship God in a very powerful and passionate way. Uh, it's also places where God gives me gifts for the journey uh, to be able to accomplish the things that He has laid out to me. Um, we'd like to invite you to a Holy Spirit retreat. Uh, we'll be meeting uh, November 6th to the 7th. Uh, this year's theme is to seek God or seek Him. Uh, it'll be at the St. Anthony's Retreat Center. You can check and view the website for more details. While we'll be meeting in person, we want to honor and respect one another by maintaining social distancing guidelines. Example, wearing masks at all times and maintaining six feet of distance, etc. Our hope is that through workshops, teaching, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, we'll curate a space of deep connection with one another and with His Spirit, a fellowship, and to cultivate a lifestyle that expands beyond the weekend. Um, just as a reminder, the upcoming sermon is rated PG-13. Jordan will be speaking on the topic of culture and sex. And so parents, please exercise wisdom and discernment in how you view this together as a family. Uh, if I could ask wherever the children are, please stand. I'd love to pray for you. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you for the children that you've given to us as a reminder that uh, their posture of how they approach uh, you, Jesus, is something that you would want us to mirror, that the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And so, Father, I pray that as we continue to seek you as a community, Jesus, I pray that we be able to seek you with eagerness and excitement. I pray, Father, for the kids as they continue in this uh, crazy ups and down seasons, Jesus, I pray that your hand of protection, your hand of guidance would be with them. I pray, Father, that you continue to minister uh, to the children, uh, continue to empower them to be ministers to their families. I pray, Father, that you would use this time uh, that they get to spend with their families as a foundation laying for their future, Lord Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, we thank you, Father, for the ways that you are never distant, but always present and close. Uh, so, Father, I pray that you would be close to each child that is standing now. Uh, we give it up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I think, uh, I think these days that uh, it's sexuality is synonymous now with identity 
And, and uh, you know, even um, I heard Amy, uh, who's up for, you know, for the Supreme Court talk about preference. And it was, uh, you know, the sexual preference versus identity. And Maisie uh, jumped all over her for that. She said, oh, that's improper that people uh, now see that as their identity. And I think that's just um, permeated through our culture. And I don't know if that's true or not, but it seems like we're moving in that direction. As sexuality becomes so much more of a, of a identifiable thing for individuals, combining that with kind of the culture of offense, that I feel like that combination is is also part of why it's so prevalent in politics and kind of the discussion at large and you, you know you have to pick a side you have to you have to kind of state your allegiance so that people know what to think of you kind of across the board lack of identity in our culture people don't know who they are and sexuality is a key ingredient to for, for people sharing and coming to grips with putting some words to their identity. You know, like maybe a certain group is more accepting towards them if they're this sexuality and, you know, they're just, everyone's trying to find some type of community. So, you know, when people go against that community that they feel like is very loving, then they have really strong, like issues, right? Against that kind of stuff too. That's actually one of the main things that, you know, once you get later in the high school, that's, that's the thing that everyone talks about, right? Like, that's what everyone wants to do. And um, just the way that our, our, our culture has, uh, has kind of lowered its standards to fit what we want. Um, it, it's taken the idea of sex and, and lowered it to the point where it's fine to do it whenever you want, wherever you want, with whoever you want, because um, it's your choice. With sexuality, I think that it spills over to all these other areas, culture, politics, morality, and even religion. So many people, even within church, are divided because of sexuality. Um, and I think we lose sight of what sexuality is you know or sexual immorality we kind of give more negative associations with certain sexual immorality and that causes division within the religion humans have an extraordinary capacity to make free choices and to be creative it's part of what makes us human and this helps us to be uniquely inventive and adaptive among creatures on the earth it also gives us the capacity to turn useful things into destructive things we can take our capacity to fight for survival and we can turn it into acts of selfish murder. We can produce an abundance of food now. We've conquered food production, and we can turn that into obesity and unhealthy eating patterns. We can take our ability to imagine, and we can turn it into lying if we want to. We can take our analytical abilities and turn them into obsessive anxieties. We can take our 
our relational adaptability and turn it into uh, manipulative and abusive relationships. We can build cities and cultures and turn them into tools of oppression. We are free, magnificent, and complex. And therefore, we have a unique ability to lose our way. Sexuality is an arena in which our freedom and our complexity, our adaptability, means that we can get unhealthy really easily. It's a volatile combination of primal pressure plus intense, <coughs> intense complexity. And it's hard sometimes even to know what's healthy. And we're fighting about that culturally today. Um, I think that American food culture is unhealthy. I think there's a food industrial complex that has conspired uh, to, uh, to promulgate bad nutritional guidelines. And there's a food industry that presents us with unhealthy food temptations all over the place, right? And as a result, somewhere between 60 and 70% of Americans today are are obese, such that the rest of the world is making fun of us. That's how bad it's gotten. And I've chosen a different nutritional path. I try very hard to be healthy, and I've, I've chosen a different nutritional and health path for my family. But nobody is telling me that I'm a jerk for trying to be healthy that way. I've chosen a different sexuality path for me and for my family, and there are lots of forces in popular culture that are telling me I'm a jerk for doing that. And it's gotten kind of brutal. Uh, the Christian tradition for 2,000 years has been one that combines chastity with lifelong monogamy, right? Everybody kind of knows uh, what that is. Uh, when I was young and the sexual revolution was kind of hitting full stride, it was cool to call traditional Christian sexual morality repressive. Anybody old enough to remember that? Not many of you. It was repressive. It kind of came out of Freudian psychology. Oh, monogamy, chastity, that's unhealthy because you're repressing natural urges. You can't do that, man. Hey, free love, free sex. That's what it was all about. Now, the cool thing is to call traditional Christian morality oppressive, that you're being oppressive if you make the choice to uh, follow it and to encourage it, and you are ruining society as a result. Of course, every scrap of research ever shows that chastity and lifelong monogamy and, and the sort of families that they produce are vastly good for society. Um, Things like childhood poverty uh, goes way down uh, wherever, I guess you could call it traditional Christian families and traditional uh, Christian uh, sexuality manifests itself. Uh, children in such families have way better academics, they have way better physical health, they have way better psychological health. Uh, crime rates associated with those households are much, much lower than crime rates associated with different sorts of households. Out-of-wedlock birth correlates with social ills more than any other social factor uh, today, uh, probably, depending a little bit how you define things. And it crosses uh, through other social ills. Uh, in society right now, uh, we've been talking a lot about the tragic uh, difference between uh, 
social ills in the black community versus social ills in like the white community. Uh, black poverty rates, for instance, black kids are roughly twice as likely to grow up in poverty than white kids. It's roughly 5% to 10%. But black kids in what you would call traditional homes, two-parent families, um, long-term uh, faithful families, are 2.5 times less likely to live in poverty than are white kids from broken homes. So traditional, you could call it traditional Christian households, just do way, way better. It's a powerful blessing, but you, you can't necessarily tell that by the way popular culture is talking about Christian sexuality. Uh, what should our sexual culture be like in the world? Well, I think traditional Christian sexuality uh, is probably good. But really, what I'm advocating for uh, these days uh, is I think, that, I think that people should have sexual freedom. But I mean that in a certain way. Uh, I think that individuals should be able to choose freely and well. I want people to consider themselves sexually free so that they can make wise choices. You are not a robot. You are not pre-programmed toward some sexual end. Sexuality is not predetermined. But because we're human, our sexuality is largely undetermined. We can do a lot of different things with it. I just want you to be free enough and wise enough to know the power of your own choices. Choice is the first thing that human beings try to remember about themselves. The oldest story that humanity has, which is the opening of the book of Genesis, shows that humanity was defined by our ability to choose. There were two trees in the garden, remember? And that choice determined a lot for our race. And that's the first thing that we try to remember about ourselves in our ancient stories. Uh, sexual morals in the Bible have always been about the tension between what is possible and what is profitable. Uh, you can be healthy, you can follow God's commands in terms of sexual morality, or you can, as was often the case in the Old Testament, become a Baal worshiper, engage in all manner of sexual debauchery to the point that uh, you would sacrifice your own babies to Molech uh, in, uh, in religious ritual. My point, the point that I try to encourage, the realization that I try to give people today is that wherever you find yourself in terms of your sexuality, there is a path of choice that can take you somewhere else if you want. Because you're human. And because you get to choose. You get to create, you get to adapt. That's part of the deal. There are so many different things that we could talk about in the arena of sexuality, but this sermon series is about the culture that we're in today. So I wanna to talk mostly about the culture of sexuality, which means talking about the big hot button issues of the day. When I was young, the big social debates about sexual morality revolved around this idea of free love, that you got to practice sex uh, more often uh, than was traditional. These days, the obvious hot button issues are about homosexuality and transgenderism. So I wanna talk a bit about that today. But in Jesus's day, the big hot button 
cultural issue had to do with divorce and adultery. In Malachi chapter 2, we read that God hates divorce. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Uh, in Matthew 5, Jesus picked up the topic and said, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I say that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So it's a very sobering stance Jesus is taking. And it says divorce is hurtful. Avoid it. Don't do it. Yet, Scripture also certifies divorce and explains to us how to do it properly and creates a little tension there. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, it says, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, indecent about her behavior, I guess, he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house. And in that fashion, the woman could prove that this man had divorced her Therefore, she could marry another man. That was very important to women in those days because marriage was how they provided for themselves and, and their family. It was uh, an important issue of social welfare. <clears throat> God hates divorce, the scripture makes clear, but he also allows divorce, right? What's up with that? And this issue comes up again in Matthew chapter 19. The Pharisees are talking to Jesus about this tension between God hating divorce, between divorce being hurtful, and God allowing it, even though it's hurtful. What's up with that? Some Pharisees came to him to test him, it says in Matthew 19. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. That's why divorce is so bad. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? In other words, Jesus, if it's so bad, why does God allow it? Political hot-button issue of the day. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery due to the hardness of your hearts what jesus is saying here is like look in the ideal world man woman they get together they stay together faithfully forever and to do anything else causes great damage but god knows that we are hard-hearted humans and therefore he allows us to divorce because he knows that we're going to do that or worse if we don't get some separation it is a compassionate allowance. Understand? God identifies a standard of behavior, but he knows that we're going to break it, and he takes measures to make sure that we're protected as much as possible from our own sinfulness. That's basically what the story is. 
I bring up divorce, which was a hot button issue of Jesus's day, because in this day and age, we have learned to be more accepting of it. We Christians, I think, have a fairly healthy idea about divorce. It's like, well, it's really bad. Let's do everything we possibly can to avoid it. And, and if we can't, well, then maybe we just have to be merciful and let it happen and do the best that we can with it, which I think is a mature attitude because it embraces both truth and reality on one hand and grace and generosity on the other. And in the kingdom of God, truth and grace always go together. This is true about the sexuality issues of Jesus's day and it's true about the hot button sexuality issues of our day. Amen? Amen. So yeah, the big hot button issues of culture today in the realm of sexuality have to do with homosexuality and transgenderism. When I was younger, uh, homosexuality was referred to as a preference, as a choice. But these days, you can't say that you have a sexual preference because it implies that people have a choice. And choice is, is kind of what's being uh, attacked. Uh, your view on that has become perhaps the biggest litmus test for whether or not you're in or out of certain dominant uh, culture groups. Uh, these days, if you think that, let's just call them non-traditional sexualities are unhealthy, if you are of that opinion, uh, then you're probably called a hater or a homophobe or just an awful person who won't open your eyes to truth or ostensibly science. And the state is getting involved in this as a big way just to ramp up pressure even more. Uh, 15 years ago, we were still debating things like civil unions and gay marriage. Uh, but now uh, states and cities are passing ordinances that require people to use uh, gender nonspecific pronouns or pronouns of choice for transgendered people. Uh, the most famous one, the most famous international case had to do with the Ottawa Human Rights Commission uh, that said that if you don't use people's preferred pronouns, you were subject to fines or perhaps jail time uh, after that. New York uh, famously passed some similar laws. I think it defined 31 or 32 different gender permutations that a person can go to. And it said in places of business, any kind of business, if you didn't use someone's preferred uh, gender pronoun, even if that pronoun was, was made up uh, from your perspective, then you were subject to fines and potentially imprisonment as well. Uh, at the beginning of the Obama administration, President Obama was not in favor of gay marriage, but at the end of the Obama administration, just to measure the shift, Obama issued an executive order that said that, uh, that restrooms in federal buildings like schools all had to be unisex um, in order to support transgendered people. Otherwise, those institutions were at risk of losing federal funding. There was a huge backlash uh, from that that became a big deal. Uh, many states, I think California was the first, now has laws on the books that if you have a child who's decided that he or she might be homosexual or might be transgender, you cannot take that child to therapy. Uh, if you do, you might be charged with child abuse uh, by the state and you risk losing your child to state custody, uh, which is an extremely aggressive uh, state policy. I mentioned last week that 
foster and adoption agencies of states these days are using uh, surveys to determine whether parents would, for instance, let their teenage foster or adopter child uh, do sexual sleepovers uh, if they were gay or take their foster or adoption child to get hormone treatments at age 14 uh, or 15 if the child asked for that. Because if you're not willing to do those things, according to the state of Idaho or any number of states in the union, then you are an unfit parent and the state will not give you custody. It's pretty aggressive, right? Culture is getting pretty hot about this stuff, pretty seething, and it makes it hard to talk about it with any degree of objectivity and balance. I'm just saying that um, because I realize that that's the context into which I'm speaking. I wanna take a few minutes to talk about what scripture says uh, about things like homosexuality, and then I wanna talk about what science says about it just so that we have an objective handle on things, uh, and then I will wrap up. Um, scripture, just to be clear about it, says that homosexuality is a bad idea, and Scripture is not unclear about it, although there are a lot of uh, arguments about that these days. Homosexuality is mentioned 11 times in the Bible, and every time it's mentioned, it's mentioned in the negative. You can go through and read some of these passages yourself, Genesis 19, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, Judges 19, 1 Kings 14 and 15, uh, 2 Kings 23, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1, June, uh, Jude 7. I wanted to go through just one of those uh, quickly together from Leviticus chapter 18. This is probably the most famous slash infamous passage on it. Uh, people treat it uh, as a passage on homosexuality, but really it's not that. Really it's a pas passage about the culture of sexuality. Uh, what's happening here is that the Israelites are moving away from Egypt and into the promised land, and there are lots of cultures around them, and God just wants to make sure that they understand that they should take their, uh, their cultural cues from God and not from the sexual cultures that are around them. Just excerpts from Leviticus chapter 18. Uh, God provides this whole list of sexual practices and, and uh, tells you uh, that they are myth unhealthy practices. You must not do as they do in Egypt, God says, where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations with them. I am the Lord. Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. I agree. Uh, she is your mother. Do not have relations with her, uh, it says. I'll skip down a few verses to verse 17. Do not have sexual relations with both a woman and her daughter. That would get funky really fast. Do not have sexual relation with either her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter. They are her close relatives. That is wickedness. You can't have sexual relations with a whole family, uh, God says. Amen? That, guy, that makes sense to everyone? Uh, skipping down a couple verses, picking it up in verse 19. Do not approach a woman to have sexual relations during the uncleanness of her monthly period. There were some uh, disease, medical concerns with that. 
Do not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. Your neighbor's wife, sure. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Uh, Molech was sort of a, a god of sexuality in the Canaanite culture. Uh, what was going on is that people would, would have a baby and then they would throw that baby into a fire in front of this idol of Molech. You'd sacrifice your baby to the god of sexual pleasure and prosperity. And God is saying, that's a bad thing to do with a baby. Amen to that. Uh, do, not, um, do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That's detestable. There's the verse about homosexuality. Do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That's a perversion. Some translations will say that's a confusion. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. This is what went wrong with their culture. It was sexuality that took them out. Even the land was defiled, uh, God says. So what's going on here is it's just a list of all of these sexual practices that God says are really harmful. And most of us would agree that the sexual practices listed are harmful. Do you think it's a good thing to sleep with your father's wife? No. No, and nobody's going to argue that that is. Or to sleep with your neighbor's wife, to commit adultery that way. We're pretty agree that that's not a good thing. Do you think it's a good, healthy thing to have sex with animals? Okay, Pro probably not. That's probably not contentious. But the thing was, in Israel's context, you the Egyptians and the Canaanites, they did accept these sexual practices. These sexual practices were popular among the dominant cultures around the Israelites. And God was just saying to them, don't take your cues from dominant culture. And he mentioned sexuality in, in this regard. Sexuality can go bad, and when it does, God says, it goes really bad throughout whole society to the point where people could just start sacrificing babies to the God of sexuality, to the false God of sexuality, if you could imagine such a thing. This is the truth of Scripture, but there's also a lot of grace in Scripture. As a balancing Scripture, I'd like to read from Paul's first letter to Timothy. From chapter 1, this is Paul giving advice to his protege, Timothy, and he says, uh, We know that the law isn't made for righteous people, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and the religious. Paul is saying these are the sorts of people that need the law to correct their practices. The law is there for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers, and for homosexuals, for slave traders, and liars, and perjurers, he goes on. These people need to be made aware of God's law because it will help correct them, is essentially what he's saying. But a few lines later, he says this to Timothy. So here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, Tim. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. I love this statement from Paul because he just rattled off a lot of sins, you know, uh, for lawbreakers and rebels, ungodliness, for, for those who kill fathers and mothers, for adulterers, 
for homosexuals, for liars, all of these things. But Paul says, I am the worst though. However bad that sin is, I've committed worse stuff. And that's very humble of Paul. And I just think that we need to be clear about how scripture treats these issues. It has a truth standard for healthy sexuality, but it always treats those standards with humility and grace. The science of sexuality uh, has been front and center, center in our uh, cultural upheaval uh, where sexuality is concerned. And I just want to talk about the science of uh, homosexuality a little bit um, because uh, we tend to get beaten over the head with it, and I think people generally misunderstand it. Um, science does not show that homosexuality is genetically determined, contrary to lots of claims uh, otherwise. Um, I, I think the big point here is that if homosexuality were genetically predetermined by natural selection, then that, that genetic trait would have to have natural advantages in reproduction because that's how genetic traits get selected in nature. I'm pretty sure that there's no reproductive advantage in homosexuality. Stop me if you're not following that, right? So it's very unlikely that it has been selected that way. I don't think sexuality gets predetermined in that fashion. I think the reality of human sexuality is just that it is largely undetermined and we can make of it lots of different things. Uh, tons of examples of bad science has been publicized in this debate, and that's kind of unfortunate. I think it started way back in the early 90s. In 1991, there was a famous study of identical twins done uh, by some researchers named Baylor and Pillard, uh, and it was claimed that 50% of the time, 52% of the time, if one identical twin is gay, then the other identical twin will be gay as well. So it's a 50% linkage. Homosexuality has only got like a 1.3% prevalence in the normal population. So if it were that much higher among twins, the scientists claim that shows a genetic linkage since identical twins have identical genes. Really ironic because identical twins have identical genes and if 50% of the time their sexuality were different, I think that's an argument for not genetic determination. Uh, but in any case, it turned out that the whole study was flawed and subsequent studies of large populations show that uh, in twins, there's only about a 7% correspondence. So if one twin is gay, only about 7, 8% of the time is the other twin gay, which shows not much genetic influence and perhaps more socialization uh, due to social closeness is what's going on there. Also in 1991, there was a famous study by a guy named Simon LeVay. He, uh, he was uh, studying, it's kind of gross, cadavers of, of gay men. And he claimed that in gay men, the hypothalamus section of the brain uh, was uh, larger than in heterosexual men, so gay people had different brains, uh, was the claim. Originally, it was attacked for it, and then people said, oh, no, wait, this shows genetic predetermination, uh, so we like it. Uh, the case eventually was widely uh, discredited, but not before it had been publicized uh, globally, and people started to believe that there was a difference in the brains 
of homosexuals. In the early 2000s, uh, there were a series of studies involving a guy named Dean Hamer who found an irregularity uh, in a chromosomal marker called XQ28, and he claimed that, that gay people, he studied uh, gay brothers, uh, shared uh, this irregularity. Um, it turned out that that study was widely uh, discredited. It turned out that Hamer himself was gay and that he was using the study to push for more money to study uh, homosexual issues. And he even later admitted that his study uh, proved nothing. But oh, it created this huge media sensation. And his studies still get quoted today as proof that there's some sort of genetic role in determining homosexuality. The media weighs in on a lot of studies and, and I think probably intentionally misconstrues them for the sake of readership. An example comes uh, from a UCLA study uh, that had to do with the chemical pathway of gender determination in, in babies and in, in fetuses. Uh, we know that when sperm and egg combine, there's some genetic material there and right at the moment of conception, uh, the, the gender of the baby will be determined. It's either going to be a girl baby or a boy baby. But we didn't know exactly the chemical pathway that the cells went through in order to produce a little boy or a little girl. Uh, and so this study took a look at that and helped define the chemical pathway that made a little boy become a little boy, a little girl become a little girl. That's all the study was about right there. But Reuters News Service reported it this way. Sex, this is in 2003. Sexual identity is wired into genes, which discounts the concept that homosexuality and transgender sexuality are a choice, California researchers reported. But actually, the research had nothing at all to do with homosexuality or transgenderism. It was just about how one fetus becomes a little boy and another fetus becomes a, a, a little girl. Um, there's complete misrepresentation of what the study showed, but oh, it created a media sensation, front page CNN News, I remember. Scientific researchers have examined things like the length of the ring fingers of lesbians, uh, because it was suggested that perhaps lesbians have slightly longer ring fingers than uh, heterosexual women, and if they could prove that, that would show a genetic linkage. Eye-blinking patterns have been studied in homosexuals because maybe eye-blinking patterns would show some sort of neurological difference that showed genetic linkage. Inner ear structures have been studied by researchers uh, to see if there's some sort of inner ear uniqueness among homosexuals that would suggest a genetic linkage. In other words, scientists have gone crazy trying to find linkages, genetic linkages, and nothing at all has been turned up, which again is probably predictable. Unfortunately, research has shown that homosexuals face some unique physical challenges. Homosexual men uh, live on average seven years shorter than heterosexual men. In part, this is due to higher rates of communicable diseases, liver disease especially, certain cancers as well, having to do with style of, style of sex but also promiscuity rates, particularly among gay men. There are a series of, of surveys, series of studies on promiscuity among gay men, and they show some impressive statistics. 
roughly 80% of homosexual men surveyed estimate that they have had sex with 50 or more partners in a lifetime. 40, 43% of gay men estimate that they've had sex with 500 or more partners in a lifetime. And over a quarter, something like 28% of gay men estimate that they've had sex with a thousand or more partners in their lifetime. And again, those results have been uh, common uh, across various studies. And that level of promiscuity sets, sets you up uh, for some physical danger and some physical damage. Uh, that's among gay men, and I think this has to do with the complementarity of, of genders. Uh, you can think about it this way. It's stereotypical, so excuse me. But men are pretty much ready to have sex at any time. Guys? Nobody's going to admit to that. Women are a little more complicated about how they approach sexual relations stereotypically. Um, and what happens then is when males and females get together for sex, uh, the one moderates the other, right? The, the woman sort of slows the guy down. He has to invest a little more relationally into it, you know, stuff like that. Say, just, just nod your heads if you're following me. Well, I don't have to go into specifics here. But if you have a man with the man, well, there's no moderation there, right? There's no moderation to their sexuality and sexual practice. And you see that reflected in patterns of, of promiscuity among gay men. And unfortunately, that has some serious health uh, repercussions, uh, as it turns out. Uh, there are also higher rates of mental and emotional illnesses among homosexuals, unfortunately. There are 20 more 20 times more likely to suffer antisocial personality disorder, 15 times more likely to develop eating disorders, 500% more suicidal, uh, significantly higher rates of occurrence of depression and anxiety disorder and conduct disorder and narcissistic personality disorder and substance abuse. So some uh, major challenges. Uh, and these trends are steady across cultures. Uh, in cultures where homosexuality is still controversial and in cultures where homosexuality is quite acceptable, those rates of trouble uh, are constant. And the stats on transgenderism are even more bracing. Transgenderism has not been studied as much as homosexuality itself, but famously transgendered people are uh, a thousand percent more suicidal than non-transgender people. Um, there's some studies recently that show if they're in a very, very supportive environment that perhaps that suicidality can go down a little bit, which would be really great. And those sorts of numbers really recommend that we approach transgendered people with a lot of tenderness and a lot of acceptance, right? I should hope that would be really obvious. Research on transgenderism has shown the profound effects of social groups on uh, transgender declaration. Teen girls who have transgendered friends in their close social group are 7,000% more likely to declare themselves transgender than girls who don't have transgendered friends. Why? Well, because teens all feel displaced and awkward and because peer pressure among teenagers is a really big influence. But research also shows that the younger you are, the more likely your transgender identifications are to be temporary, uh, which argues against pumping 
kids full of hormones uh, when they're young and uh, think that they might be transgender. Here's the grace about sexuality, as humbly, objectively, and evenly as I can. Here's the truth and the grace. Uh, homosexuality, transsexuality, any sort of non-standard sexuality <clears throat> is unhealthy. It carries challenges uh, that all else equal, one would want to avoid. And God can totally accept you wherever you are in terms of your sexuality. God is totally willing to work with you wherever you are with respect to your sexuality. Are you, are you hearing me on that? Is that clear? It's like it's very clear. Scripture, science, social science. <clears throat> what you would call Christian morality, way healthier than any other sort of sexuality, okay? That's just truth. But there's also grace, which is none of us are perfect, and just as is the case with divorce, God is willing to enter into whatever situation you're in sexually and deal with you where you're at, and to act compassionately with you where you're at. Everybody say amen so that I know that you heard that. Amen. You know, as with divorce and remarriage, I think it's helpful to recognize that, that homosexuality, for instance, is a less than ideal outcome with unhealthy effects. I don't want to pretend that any kind of sexuality is fine, because I don't think that's what the data say. But neither do I want to reject people, and nobody should reject anyone, because that's not God's way either. There's truth and there's grace. And sexuality is hard for any of us because we're complex, because we're so adaptive, because it's hard to identify clear boundaries. So grace is recommended. <clears throat> but dominant deconstructionist culture today is insisting that as a Christian, I'm a bigot and I'm ignorant. That's what dominant culture is saying to me. And state government power is enforcing that view more and more. And I don't like it at all. I'm getting increasingly upset about that. I'm actually neither ignorant nor bigoted. I've actually examined the genetic science, the behavioral science, the social science, and arrived at some very informed opinions. I have not done this lightly. And I've spent decades walking with brave individuals who have worked very hard to find true sexual freedom. I've personally walked with around 80 to 85 individuals who have changed their sexual orientation because they felt led to do so. And they've all been very courageous individuals. I have personally walked with about 10 persons who lived transgendered and then changed back to their biological agenda again very courageous individuals. And I'm not saying that anyone has made a conscious choice uh, to be a homosexual or a conscious choice to be transgendered, but what I am saying is that you can make a conscious choice to go somewhere else with your sexuality if you want to, because you're human, and you can, because God himself has given you choice. And we're all on a journey in this regard. 
And that's true for all of us, no matter what our sexuality is like. We all need high standards. We all need to come to terms with truth and facts and reality and health and unhealth. But we also all need to exercise great compassion, great compassion for other people, no matter where they are with their sexuality. And I'm going to suggest here at the end, having great compassion for yourself in terms of your sexuality, no matter how you identify, no matter what you're struggling with, give yourself a break because scripture teaches that God is certainly willing to give you a break. That's kind of what he does. When you feel the compassion of the Lord, when you feel the freedom to make choices, knowing that God won't abandon you automatically just because, well, then you have strength to make choices and you open yourself up to the help of the Holy Spirit. Are you following me? Truth and grace must always go together. That is how it has ever been in the kingdom of God. And that's how it is now. The culture today is filled with neither truth nor grace. So I pray that the church of Jesus would stand up and exemplify the attitude that we need to exemplify. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, I pray that in the house of God, freedom would be manifest and that you would lead us to healthy places that benefit us, our society, our children forever. But I pray, Lord, that you would make us people of truth and grace together and we would be agents of healing and true progress in this arena. I pray, Father, that we would construct a better future together and that we would be light, that we would be light, Lord, not just argumentative, but health-giving, life-giving. In Jesus' name, amen. Aloha, family. Thank you for joining us for this week's service. You know, today's sermon was a lot to take in and process. In fact, this sermon series on culture has really opened my eyes to influences I've allowed in my own thoughts, behaviors, and beliefs mm -hmm. that stem from the spirit of the world. We're not to be influenced by the world. Instead, it is God's plan for you and I to change the world with truth, love, and grace. Yeah, in my life, there's been no struggle that I faced that an encounter with God didn't help. If you're struggling in any way and you're in need of an encounter with God, please contact us to receive prayer. We have prayer ministers available every Sunday from 10.30 to 11 a.m. Just email us at julie at bluewatermission.org and you'll be set up with a prayer team. In 1 John 4.4, it says, the Holy Spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit that is in the world. Yeah, God, so with that, I pray that as we go through this culture series, you would answer the questions that are deep down in our hearts Show us and teach us how to live in your kingdom culture. Give us wisdom as we navigate today's society. And I pray a blessing over our week with your manifest presence to be in us and around us, for your peace to cover us, and for us to be the light shining in the darkness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.